Started. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Another brisk morning, but not nearly like yesterday. So we usually start out our Medical Grand Rounds by uh, reviewing what this week's uh, issues were from the culinary medicine program that we've got here. I hope you've taken advantage of learning today about uh, economic uh, preparation of food. There's a book out there on uh, $4 a day meals and uh, as a resource for our patients and, and others. And um, we do a trivia contest, and the trivia is based on last week's topic. Last week's topic was tools and supplies for the home chef. And the question that would be answers is, what is your favorite kitchen tool or supply and why? The prize today is a perfect portion ladle. Look at that, beautiful ladle. And um, to help us today is our wonderful guest speaker. And Steve, if, oop, if you could pick from these uh, candidates. I this one. That one right there, okay. And what we have is a my knife, because I can do so many things with it. Marion Kate. <laughs> So, Marianne, okay, you win this perfect. And I hope that uh, you're taking advantage of learning about the education materials that are out there. Thank you. This morning's uh, breakfast was quite nice, and uh, I hope you interact with the group that spends a lot of time thinking about these uh, ways of helping us understand about culinary medicine. I'm delighted today to introduce Steve Bartels, who is a friend and colleague and an amazing academic physician. He's the Herman O. West Professor of Psychiatry, and he's a professor also in Community and Family Medicine and a professor in the Dartmouth Institute. As you can see here, he directs the Centers for Health and Aging and our CDC Health Promotion Research Center at Dartmouth. He went to Amherst and then the University of Virginia for medical school. He also uh, attended the Dartmouth Institute, and he did his internship and, and training in psychiatry at Cambridge Hospital, and joined us, I believe, around 1986. Okay. So let me tell you that with the direction of the Dartmouth Center for Health and Aging, he oversees the Dartmouth Center for Aging Research, the Northern New England Geriatric Education Center, and the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Aging Resource Center. He leads health services research, and you know within that he's working on developing, testing, and implementing interventions focused on the intersection between the physical and mental disorders, including health care management, health coaching, health promotion interventions for obesity in adults with mental disorders, integration of mental health in primary care, self-management, applied use of automated uh, telehealth technology for co-occurring physical and mental health disorders, community-based implementation research, and evidence-based models of integrated care. These are all of the great things that our institution is currently very well focused on and, and moving forward with in so many ways. You know about our active telehealth program, the population-based uh, uh, management strategies that we're doing. And Steve, you're right in the middle of all of the right things that are happening there. Just a few other quick things. He's a past president of the American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry. He was the founding chair of Geriatric Mental Health Foundation. Uh, there are so many other things I could tell you, but he asked me to keep it um, a bit shorter. He is a consummate mentor. 
of many of our faculty and so many uh, uh, people uh, around him, and he's been awarded uh, recognition for that. One other, two other things, he, um, he heads the Research Education and Training Program for Dartmouth Synergy CTSA. He's a principal investigator and funded in several R01s, and he has additional uh, funding. He, this CDC Health Promotion Research Center focuses on reducing cardiac risk, cardiovascular risk factors, including obesity, tobacco use in primary care, and in mental health. He's the author of well over 250 uh, individual peer-reviewed publications or scientific abstracts and book chapters, and he is uh, continually funded in his work. There are no financial disclosures for this morning, and I am delighted, Steve, to have you address us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, it's really great to be here. Uh, can people hear me? Is this microphone on? Yes? No? Should be on. Um, let me see. The switch is on, so it's working? Okay, good. So uh, really happy to be here to talk about the complex uh, patient and some of the work that we've been doing here at Dartmouth. And I'm, I forgive, forgive me for focusing on the work that uh, the group that I have been pleased to work with for so many years has been doing, but uh, so I'm going to omit a lot of other work that's been done by many people here. But uh, I'm going to talk about most of what I know, but I think you'll see that this has something to do also with uh, hopefully work that you're doing clinically. And uh, again, as I mentioned, no, no major disclosures other than the fact that I'm happy to be funded by a number of grants. So, uh, so what I'm going to talk a little bit about is the challenge of, uh, of medical comorbidity and early mortality and talk a little about the complex patient. And then I'm going to move into research that uh, our group has been engaged in here at Dartmouth on health coaching, self-management, and technology in terms of health behavior change specifically. And I'll tell you why that's so important in a couple of minutes. And then finish with... Uh, a future vision for how we might move um, the academic health system and Geisel and Synergy and many of the th terrific things that we have here together into uh, an approach that hopefully will start to innovate in these areas uh, and help improve care and improve all, the, all of what we want to do in terms of also training the next generation. So first, the challenge of uh, medical comorbidity and mortality. And I'm going to start with, uh, with a patient. And uh, I'll also end with a patient, actually, too, in the end. Um, but what is, who is the complex patient? Um, and so uh, this is Gus. Uh, Gus is in one of our studies in Boston right now, a Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation Study. And uh, Gus is a 62-year-old man living in subsidized, uh, supervised housing. He has a few uh, chronic health conditions, as you can see here. Um, obesity, hypertension, congestive heart failure, diabetes, COPD, atrial fibrillation, I could go on and on. And when we started, uh, work, he had had multiple hospitalizations on regular basis and ER visits when we started working with him. And he only had about 32 medications that he was on when we started uh, working with him. Now, it's important to think about, you know, what actually does Gus want? Uh, Gus actually isn't pursuing as his major goal a hemoglobin A1C in a particular uh, area. Uh, Gus wants to be a chef, and he also wants to live his life in the community and not end up in an institution. Um, and uh, he is now focused on improving his exercise, improving his healthcare management, and coping with daily stressors so that he can become a chef and continue to live independently. Now the key here 
which is what I'll be getting to, this is kind of the punchline throughout where I'll be getting at the end, is, is the key here is, is Amelia, uh, who's, uh, who you can see over his right shoulder, and the technology that she's helping him to work with. Health coaching and technology together. This is a success story. Gus is a success story. Um, and uh, he's a success story because if we were talking about maybe 10 or 20 years ago, uh, Gus would either be in an institution, usually in a nursing home where he's getting no uh, mental health care at all and just getting a, a long-term care support, but being down the hall sitting in front of a TV uh, intermingled with people with Alzheimer's, or he would be dead. So this is interesting in, this, in the context of the fact that we do have, as we know, we have this a wonderful phenomenon of longevity that we're seeing. And as we all know, people are getting older and living longer, which is part of why it's great to have a Center for Aging, um, focusing on that. But um, what we know is that this, this success story doesn't apply to everybody. And certainly, you know, I see Al Mully here, you know, the, clearly uh, it doesn't apply around the world in terms of longevity. And we know that, for example, if you look at the global life expectancy, that there's huge, there's huge uh, diversity and disparities in terms of uh, life expectancy. And so take Ethiopia. Well, maybe we should just take the United States and focus also on a subgroup of individuals who actually have the same life expectancy of people in Ethiopia. And this was a study that was done uh, a number of years ago by uh, Colton and Manderscheid that were looking at, uh, looking at, uh, at, at uh, potential years of life lost and early mortality across multiple states, across multiple years. This is not regional variation. This is pretty consistent. Looking at 25 to 30 years reduced life expectancy for people with major mental illness. So what's this about? Why is that? And what we know is that, again, while we're looking at uh, across the nation this uh, increasing uh, life expectancy, that people with mental illness in this USA Today report tend to be dying anywhere from 7 to 25 years earlier than the rest of the population. And that uh, it's the reverse. So, you know, the, the, the new 75 is the, 75 is the new 50, not for people with mental illness. It's the opposite. So what's the cause? Why are people dying early? Is it, uh, is it suicide? Is it uh, violence? It's actually a, a cardiovascular disease, heart disease in all these states. Uh, it is literally about people dying from um, heart disease uh, that is taking their lives early in their 50s. And this is something that we started seeing when I was medical director for mental health for the state. I would start seeing lots of reports of people who were looking at death reports. And a lot of them, some of them were suicides, but we, kept, we started seeing more and more people who were having cardiovascular episodes. Now, you would think in improving health care, that this, uh, this gap between lifespan for the rest of the population and people who are at high risk, the so-called complex patient, would be getting better. This is actually a study showing that over the last several decades, actually the gap has widened. I would challenge you to think about any population that you can think of in the United States that constitutes about 2 to 3 percent or up to 4 percent of the population for which they have this sort of health disparity and it's going backwards. So why is that? Well, one of the reasons, as you might imagine, is the wonderful medications that we get to prescribe people with uh, mental illness and the iatrogenic effects of some of these uh, agents uh, that uh, 
You can see here on the right-hand side, uh, for example, olanzapine and clozapine, drugs that have been around these new generation of antipsychotics. But a number of medications cause weight gain in people with mental illness that's significant, hyperlipidemia and diabetes. But it's also safe to say that uh, there are other factors that are associated with increased risk in this population with people with mental illness. And, uh, and the good news is they're modifiable. The bad news is, is that it is an extraordinary phenomenon in terms of a perfect storm of risk factors in a subpopulation. And I, again, um, I think that you'll see that this also applies to other patients that you have that, uh, that may not have major mental illness, but certainly have some of these risk factors. And so we know that people with mental illness have about uh, uh, four times the rate of abdominal obesity they are very high likely to smoke. About 80% have uh, smoking histories or, or, or uh, have been uh, engaged in smoking. Um, diabetes, twice, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome, I could go on, that the risk factors are huge for this subpopulation, and they all pile together. A part of it's medications, but part of it also is, is a... Uh, is a lack of uh, access to, to kind of the types of things that many of us enjoy, safe places to exercise, healthy, affordable nutrition, which is why the, the demonstration out front is so great. We work a lot with family, with uh, patients to kind of, how can you afford to actually eat healthy? You can. You don't have to go to the co-op and go to the $2 a, a piece, uh, you know, organic apples. There's other ways that you can actually eat healthy. Um, and so that uh, these sorts of things around the social inequities actually inform uh, the types of health disparities we see. And this is true for pretty much any health disparity population uh, that has these sort of complex syndromes. The bottom line is that uh, the types of things that we know from the Framingham study uh, in terms of the, the way in which these risk factors pile up uh, in, terms of, uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of risk are in fact present in the types of complex patients that we see every day. And so smoking, an elevated BMI, diabetes, hypertension, uh, hypercholesterolemia, uh, th those are actually very, very prevalent in, in the types of patients that we're seeing on a regular basis. And so in, in some respects, I'm presenting this, not this uh, kind of paradigm, as an example uh, of, a, of the most complex, most challenging types of patients. And I think if we can kind of get it right in this population, my, I would hypothesize that we can get it right in almost any population. Because you also have the complexities of having the motivational factors of being depressed or the complexities of being disorganized of having mental health problems. So that's the, that's the focus that we've had as a research group for about 15 years now. Now, these risk factors actually are totally aligned with the types of risk factors that we know nationally and, and internationally in terms of uh, uh, early death and early mortality. So if you look at the types of things that, uh, that contribute to early mortality, they are the types of things that are, in fact, we can affect as physicians and nurses and healthcare providers, blood pressure, tobacco use, glucose, inactivity, overweight and obesity, high cholesterol. This is stuff we know very well. Uh, and yet, how do we get it done? What are the things we need to do to make it happen? Well, it'd be great if healthcare was actually the, the answer here, that actually providing better healthcare by itself would move this dot. And obviously, it's incredibly important that we deliver high-quality healthcare, and the types of innovations we have are absolutely responsible for increased uh, longevity and, and life expectancy and quality of life. But it's humbling 
to think about what really contributes the maximum, the mother load of, uh, of, of factors that are associated with longevity and actually health status. And we know that, uh, that uh, four times of what we can explain in terms of longevity is due to health behaviors uh, relative to health care. We also know for health status, subjective health status, it's actually five times. Fifty percent of your health, subjective health status is related to health behaviors compared to about ten percent of health care. So it's really important that we figure out how to get this right. But if you don't care about that, you might care about, if you're a, an administrator, you might care about the fact uh, that uh, outside of early mortality, that these individuals that have complex conditions cost a lot of money. And we know that people with comorbid chronic health conditions and chronic uh, mental health and substance use disorders account for about two to three times the cost of any population. By far, they are the people that I know when you are seeing patients, the person who's depressed or disorganized or has attention deficit disorder or has a bipolar disorder and also has all these medical problems. These folks cost a lot of money. And they are, if we don't get that right, we're also going to sink the healthcare system. So, I'm going to, that's kind of the, the setting the stage for the research that we've been involved in uh, as a research group. And I'm going to highlight work that has been done by, again, Dartmouth, uh, the team of people that I've been privileged to work with over the last uh, 15 years, focusing on these areas of health coaching, self-management, and technology. Now, you might ask, uh, why do we really need to do all this stuff? I mean, it, it's hard, but why not just advise people to change your health behavior? And we all know about the three A's and the five A's, and maybe there's eight A's somewhere, I don't know. But, but, uh, but you know, why not just, does it work to um, simply resolve to change your health behavior? Um, and, uh, you know, I think we just passed January 1st, and, and I was over at the River Valley Club uh, just the other day, and boy, the number of people there has increased. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, so does it, does it help to, to, to simply help someone to resolve to, to change their health behavior? And actually, it does help a bit. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's a it's not a sprint it's in fact a long it's it's a marathon right and so the question is not if you resolve to change health behaviors can you start to resolve behaviors but can you sustain it over time right that's the reason why we need to think about health coaching that's the reason why we need to think about technology that's the reason why we need to think about augmenting this so what about health promotion coaching in the high-risk patient. I'm going to focus on, particularly on obesity, particularly because of Rich's interest in the wonderful work that's being done in the Weight and Wellness Center that's just terrific that we've been privileged to kind of help to think about and, and collaborate on. So this all goes back to uh, a number of years ago, about 15 years ago, where I was medical director for mental health for the state. And um, I was looking at all these uh, death reports of people that were coming across my desk. And then I heard about this really cool program that was in Keene, New Hampshire. And this guy, Ken Ju, who's an executive director of the Mental Health Center. And what I heard about was that he, uh, and I talked to Ken, he said, oh, we're doing this kind of thing. I think it's called In Shape. I'm not sure we're kind of thinking about the name. But we've decided that uh, it's not good enough just to bring people in and give them medications and keep them out of the hospital. Because I've been to three uh, memorial services in the last uh, six months, and one of the patients came up to me and said, gee, uh, Mr. Jew, is, it's great to meet you. You know, uh, I've been to a number of mental health centers. You have the best memorial services of any mental health center I've been to. 
he thought that probably wasn't a good thing. Um, and so he uh, decided to work with the Keene State College uh, uh, kinesiology program down the street that had actually fitness trainers learning uh, to learn how to do fitness training. He worked with partners in the community to kind of barter memberships at the local Y and the dance company. And he decided that rather than just giving case managers the job of making sure people took these medications that we prescribe, why not get a whole cadre of individuals who are just fitness coaches or health coaches or something like that? And so when I heard about this, I said, Ken, this is great. You know, we should study this. He said, oh, yeah, we're studying it. We're getting uh, satisfaction uh, outcomes. You know, I said, no, no, no. We need to really study this. So we, we designed a pilot study, and then I wrote a quick grant to RWJ, and we got funded. And the model that uh, transpired for this high-risk, high-cost, uh, vulnerable population is one that's called in shape. Uh, there's a nurse evaluation and consultation on the front end to make sure the person's able to, uh, to engage in exercise, and a fitness assessment by a trained fitness instructor. And this person is called a health mentor because their job isn't just to tell people that they got to get down and do 20. It's to work with their kind of interests and wishes and wants and also to be able to adapt to the vicissitudes of having a mental health problem, which is not uncommon. People who have obesity, people who have smoking problems have high rates of depression. It's hard to go to the gym, as you probably know, if you're feeling down. It's hard to be motivated and to follow through. So, how do you train people to actually be very sensitive to that and also to understand that the person may not be losing weight, not because they aren't coming to the gym, but they're on these medications that are high weight gain propensity drugs and you need to help the person to keep motivated. So that requires a special type of training. So there's individual group nutrition, smoking cessation, a number of things. Um, now, one of the things is though, how do you, what are the really ingredients other than telling people that they need to eat less and exercise more, which uh, as we all know, we hear from our spouses and uh, I certainly do and, and uh, it, it doesn't work very well. Um, what does work perhaps is again this idea of health coaching and the principles of health behavior change that have been incorporated over time and learned about are, are several. First of all, it's not a good goal if the goal that your patient has or that you have is simply to lose weight and exercise more, that's not a good goal. What really is a good goal is to figure out what is important to you in your life and to help your patient think about what that is. And we train our health mentors to do that. To start out with, who do you want to be? What's important to you? What are the things that mean success for you? What makes your life really worth living? That's important because actually the way to get there is perhaps to exercise more, lose weight. It's because I want to be around. I mean, I know for myself when I start to think about uh, needing an exercise, go back to the River Valley Club that I haven't been to for three months in the fall, is I start to think about, well, what's important to me? I love my work. I like to show up. I want to be helpful. And I also want to be around for my kids and my spouse and to be able to enjoy my life. And that's really important to me. How do I get there? Well, it's certainly not sitting around gaining weight and, putting my, and, uh, and, uh, and not taking care of myself. So when Liz tells me, my wife, you need to take care of yourself, Steve, she's telling me that she wants me around it, and I know that's really important. That motivates me, and that motivates people in your practice. So starting out, what's important to that person? It's not, what's important to that person is not their A1C. It's that they want to go to that daughter's uh, a wedding, uh, you know, in uh, their daughter's wedding in, uh, in, in three months, and they are incapacitated, non-ambulatory, and, and have, uh, you know, lots of complications in their health. So 
First, doing that, identifying an actionable plan, and then it's activity-based learning. Lectures we don't know don't work, and the essence of health coaching is doing it with the person or helping them to engage in an activity that gets them there. And then finally, and really important, sustaining it, following up, measuring, and providing social support. We all know we do better when we kind of do things that actually other people are helping us to do. That's the essence of kind of successful health promotion coaching uh, that we've learned about over time. So we heard about this study, we, this uh, program in shape. We then uh, did a, uh, a pre-pilot uh, pilot study, and then we decided to write a couple of grants hoping that one would get funded um, to, to, to uh, evaluate it. So we, got, we did this study in, uh, in, uh, in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, on the InShape study, where we randomized people either towards this InShape program I just described with a health mentor and health coach, or to simply giving people a gym membership. That was probably a stupid decision because we've been haunted by the fact that giving people a gym membership who are motivated actually helps. So our control group has always kind of uh, challenged us around our, our, the kind of the effect size. But the bottom line is, is that we found in this study of obese people uh, with a major mental illness, with this health coaching intervention in shape, that we were able to, at 12 months, 49% in the intervention group either had uh, clinically significant weight loss of 5% or more, or they enhance their fitness, which is measured by a, a six-minute walk test of 50 meters or more. And both of these things have been shown to, to be associated with clinically significant reduction in cardiovascular health. There's lots of studies out there that talk about statistical significant drops in improvements. Well, two-pound weight loss is probably great but it, as a mean weight loss, but if it's not clinically significant, it doesn't make a difference. So we've had this bar of clinical significance for some time. So we did this study in an ethnically homogeneous population in Concord, New Hampshire, in a mental health center down the street from our research team, literally half a mile away, in one YMCA, tightly controlled by our research team. And we figured that, and it worked. That was good. But then we figured, well, how does this work in like the real world, which unfortunately sometimes is not in New Hampshire, um, you know, or in this tightly controlled setting. You know, well, how does it work in an ethnically diverse population in multiple sites when we're actually trying to make this thing work in a distant setting somewhere in multiple sites where we're not all over the interventionists and not providing uh, complete control of what's happening? Well, we just finished that study in Boston. We did a second RCT, randomized trial, multiple sites, 210 people, half are underserved minorities. And we didn't find that 49% had a clinically significant re uh, reduction in cardiovascular risk, we found 51%. And we have, uh, we just uh, uh, had an article that uh, is uh, in advance of print um, uh, that's been accepted uh, for, um, uh, for publication uh, this coming year, showing that we were able to replicate this. Now, the thing we also did was that after 12 months, we withdrew the health mentor and withdrew the intervention. Nobody's looked at that before. And we found that, in fact, people went from 51% having reduced cardiovascular risk only down to 46%. It isn't statistically significant. People sustained their cardiovascular improvement by having this intervention, which is really important. Um, we did transition people to some support, and I'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But suffice it to say, the people in the InShape uh, group compared to just a, a, a health club membership lost more weight 
and they became more fit. And the other people actually, I don't know how this happened, but people really slid uh, in terms of the comparison group in terms of their, uh, uh, their fitness. So the good news is, is that this is one, our work is one of a number of studies on kind of health coaching and health promotion coaching for people that are complex and challenging. So the good news is we know it works, and we've reviewed the literature. We've published syntheses and, and meta-analytic uh, kind of uh, attempts to look at this literature. But we really don't know how to get it done. And this is not, um, this is unfortunately a problem with science, which is that there's this research to implementation gap. And if you followed kind of the, the time span from kind of writing the papers, publishing it, and it's some of it's, if it's a negative result, getting thrown out. and. Uh, it said that it's about 17 years from inception to actually making a difference in the community, and that's only for 1% of the research. This is a terrible way to do research. It's a terrible way to improve health. And so I think it's part of the discussion Rich and I were having right before about how do we actually accelerate the speed of, uh, of innovation to actual uh, uh, practice, and that's something that uh, I'm really interested in thinking about here at, at Dartmouth. But uh, suffice it to say that, uh, that we need to figure out how to move from research to implementation. And this is a whole area of implementation science that we've been very interested in. And again, it's really hard to change health behaviors. We've learned that. But we actually can do that. Changing organizations is harder. And it's really hard when the thing you want to do has nothing to do with what the organizations normally get paid to do and actually see as their mission. Now, this is the case, actually, for mental health, or what we call behavioral health organizations. They don't do health behaviors, which is a paradox, right? I don't understand that, but that's, that's kind of where we've gotten to. We're not, we, we haven't really kind of gotten to the point where thinking about health behavior change is, is despite this health disparity, in part because it's not part of the mission that's been described for these organizations or the competency, scope of practice, or financing. And I'd suggest that's true for uh, probably prevention for, for healthcare systems at large until recently. That if it's not getting reimbursed, if you're not in an ACO, and you can't figure out a way, a capitated way to kind of invest in prevention and health promotion, there's no way to get reimbursed for that. It's not part of the central mission because it's not part of the real business plan. And that's the real challenge. So how do we overcome that? Part of it, too, is, is, is about a culture change. And so we've been trying to think about how do you coach organizations, not just people? What's the best way to coach organizations to change around prevention? And uh, what we've been uh, interested in is, that, uh, is, uh, is kind of learning collaboratives and helping to coach organizations as a group to adopt a frame around prevention and health promotion. So what this shows is a grant that we just got funded that we uh, were spent, we spent about, I was down in Concord uh, with our research group yesterday planning this out. We just got funded to actually implement in shape across the nation. But it's about how do you do that? How do you change culture and organizations? And there's two ways that you might try to do this. You can either coach organizations through a so-called learning collaborative, right, getting the groups around the phone or virtually to talk about their goals, to share their outcomes, to problem solve together, and to show, have peer pressure kind of help them to kind of move down the pike. Or it's about individual technical assistance. You're at an individual site. You're different than anybody else. Let's work with you individually to implement this. Now, you'd think that given the amount of, uh, of learning collaboratives around the country, that this question has been answered. When we wrote this grant, there was one study that had ever compared learning collaboratives to 
to, to see whether or not it's effective compared to just simply trying to help an organization make the change. So we're, uh, we've just uh, re uh, recruited our first uh, set of 16 sites. We're going to have 48 sites randomized to these two arms around implementing. I have no idea why California doesn't like us, um, but uh, or the West Coast, but we're going to uh, selectively try to recruit the West Coast. This is actually going to be helpful when we have our annual meetings, though, because we can, our first cohort will be on the east side of the, of the divide in general. So one way to think about implementing is to coach organizations. One way to get health promotion out there is to help change the cultures of organizations. But another might be to actually engage people like the people that are struggling with the problem. Peer health coaches. And we know from diabetes research that around glycemic control that, uh, that peer health coaching can make a big difference and actually can be very effective, even and particularly in low-income, low-health literacy populations. So peers can be helpful. We know from lots of different other studies that peers can be helpful. And so we've been thinking about this, and I'll tell you about some studies that we're involved in right now. But that's one approach. Another approach might be this gadget, which I think was one of the most popular things that people got in their stockings or whatever this year, is either a fuel band or a Fitbit or whatever, these technologies. So, so some people that I... Uh, that, uh, that I speak with regularly think that, this is, that these sorts of electronic uh, mobile health devices are the future and that all of health care is likely to be largely replaced by these devices. I actually don't think so for the complex patient. Um, and actually, this was just published, uh, Anna Adachi, who works with me, just gave me this article. This was just, uh, this was published uh, yesterday, the day before published uh, yesterday. They've, and this is about the idea that, in fact, these devices are really important, but a standalone prescribing these and giving them out in a box uh, at your practice probably isn't going to do it. Because at the end of the day, it really is the combination of human and technology factors that make it work. So these are going to be helpful, and remote technology is important. But probably the most powerful thing is the combination of the health coach or the peer and technology that monitors people over time. So uh, one of my wonderful young researchers, uh, Kelly Ashbrenner, who uh, works with me, um, came up with this idea of, of uh, peer fit. And, and this idea is to move beyond this in-shape model that we've been working on, which still, I think, has credibility, and particularly for the most uh, complex and, and challenging individuals, but to think about uh, linking the power of peers and technology together. And so that uh, what happens all the other days of the week when this person isn't with their health coach? Well, maybe what happens is, is that there's a peer who helps integrate that change in health behavior into their life. And that they use mobile health technology not only to monitor and compete for, in terms of their outcomes, but actually to text message and to communicate to each other and to support each other in terms of their health goal. So this is an example. Uh, uh, John Nasslin, who's a PhD uh, student who's working with me, actually is working on uh, automated text messages as well as supporting peers around text messaging, sharing their goals. And, and he actually uh, said that it's really interesting that, uh, that uh, people are competing with him because he posts his stuff also. And these are people, again, with mental health conditions who have obesity, who also may be very complicated medically for whom people think perhaps this is too complicated. Well, it's not. And in fact, 
They compete with him. And one thing that he's found is that uh, about 11 o'clock at night, with somebody who's close to another person, suddenly you'll see that their, their frequency will, uh, their kind of uh, steps or whatever will go up. Some people literally will probably do this or jump up and down just to compete their peer at the end of the day, which is really kind of interesting. Um, so uh, John and Kelly just published this uh, brief communication around the fact that mHealth technologies are actually usable and possibly work and helpful for low-income, low-health, uh, rather low-health literacy populations, um, uh, and uh, that uh, the participants that were used this, these devices with the augmentation of health coaching and peer and motivation wore them an average of 89% of the days that they were enrolled in the program. And half of the individuals wore them every single day and used them. But that's with support. That's with this ingredient of the human ingredient, which is so important. Now, the other thing that we've learned, which is really important and, and I've become a real fan of, is, um, is maybe we should be designing studies with the people we're trying to help and trying to work with. So, so this is Ken Ju in the middle, the, right here. This is the guy who developed in shape. This is Kelly, actually. Some of the other people here who are in this group actually are people with mental health conditions and peers that actually helped us to design this intervention I just described. And they're on the team, the research team, helping us to interpret the outcomes. And we've learned a ton from them. Uh, we actually made a, a, an initial mistake because we thought that we should train individuals who are peers to actually be coaches. They told us, we don't want to coach. We don't want to tell people what to do. We want to be there to support people like us in their health goals. Somebody else can do the coaching. Don't make us a coach. I figured people wanted to be coaches, and not everyone wants to be a coach. And so we learned that by conversations when the first pilot didn't work very well. And people were feeling really it was awkward to have somebody who was a peer of yours start to kind of tell you what to do. They said, we don't want to do that. We wouldn't have learned that if we hadn't been sitting around the table learning about why the initial pilot didn't work. And we redesigned things as the way that you saw it. So that's about prevention. What about people who have already very significant <coughs> medical comorbidity? Well, this is where chronic disease self-management health coaching and technology comes in that we've been interested in looking at. And uh, uh, when you think about people who have mental health and physical health uh, conditions, um, the real question is, is how do you have people self-manage both of those things? Is it really possible? Why not just give people medications and hope for the best? Well, we know that doesn't work very well. And so we just published a paper on this uh, intervention called Integrated Illness Management and Recovery that we developed, where it's about uh, helping people with the most, the most sick, most complex people. To get in this study, you had to have a major mental illness and one of the, one, either diabetes, COPD, congestive heart failure, uh, ischemic heart disease, hypertension, or arthritis, and have had at least a couple of uh, emergency room visits in the last six months. So what we did was we focused on helping people to self-manage. How do you do that, though, with a health disparity, low health literacy population? And the answer is make it simple. Use worksheets. Help people to choose what they feel is important to them and give these sorts of, 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 for diabetes, this is the worksheet that we work with. So people can choose something they want to work on, come up with a goal, an action plan, and I'll talk about the confidence ruler in a second, and then give them very simple information about how they interpret the information that they, they can understand. 
limited set of worksheets with a health coach that people keep and refer to on a regular basis. And then, and this is work by uh, John Wasson, who I've been so privileged to work with over the years, um, uh, who has uh, been really focused on, on this idea of health confidence. And what we do is uh, we work with people when you figured out what your goal is. So if my goal is that, uh, which it is, is to run another half marathon this spring and the Covered Bridges Half Marathon. If my goal with my health coach is that I'm going to go out and run 10 miles tomorrow, I'm in big trouble because I haven't been training for a while. So how confident, Steve, are you that you can run 10 miles uh, tomorrow or over the weekend? Oh, I'd give it about a three. Steve, that's not good enough. How do we get you to a seven? So the confidence ruler is not only something that sees how you're doing in terms of the goal, but also the health information. Do I need to know, do I know what I need to do? And we need to get people to sevens. And if it's not sevens, either I need to give people better information or they need to, or we need to work on remodifying the goal. And this health confidence approach is something we're using in the field and is also being used in some primary care practices, including in White River Junction across, and also across Canada. A number of places are working with this. So what were the outcomes in this small randomized pilot of about 71 patients that we had for self-management? training, integrated self-management. What we found was, was, that, uh, was that you can see that there was increased knowledge of symptoms, symptom distress, but the major thing we found was that this group that had, had lots of hospitalizations literally in the 10-month period of, the, of, the, uh, of the inter this is a 10-month intervention, they went down to zero hospitalizations compared to the comparison group. And also improved in the kind of healthcare encounter. So, we can make a difference in terms of outcomes in this complex group. But technology also can be helpful. And Sarah Pratt, who works with me, has been really interested in working on technology, this device called HealthBuddy. There are a number of these things out there that are commercial products. But what they are is boxes that sit next to people's phones. They have very simple buttons for low health literacy populations. If you have depression and you have diabetes, you get a very different library than if you've got COPD and some other disorder. And it is not only a device that gives you feedback, but also there is a, um, there is a uh, screen that uh, the individual, the nurse, can look at every day and see who's in the red zone, who's in the yellow zone, who's in the green zone, and then text message or do something with those folks who are in the red zone. So that's the intervention. So in, our stu in this study that we did, we found that it just so happened that in the people that were in the inter intervention group, the two-thirds had diabetes, and two-thirds of those people were completely out of control. Glucose is in the 400s and 500s. Now, six, three and six months later, two-thirds of those individuals had glucoses uh, under, under 120 at the, end of the, at the end of the study. This is a huge and really interesting and very robust effect. And there was also an impact on outcomes. And so Sarah's put in a R01 hoping to study this in Boston in a more rigorous large study. So at the end of the day, which works best? kind of automated technology, robots, or people, or both. We really don't know, uh, but actually we've just been funded to study this in Boston. We're going to be randomizing 300 of the most complex, most uh, expensive individuals, either to automated telehealth with completely remote coaching or this individual health coaching that's personalized and see which one works better. Maybe they work differently for different disorders and different types of people. We're going to try to figure that out, and uh, we're starting that study in March. So finally, are there other things that work? What about paying people? 
to change your health behavior. Does that work? Does paying people to lose weight, exercise, and stop smoking work? A behavioral economics question. Well, we actually um, saw a grant announcement a number, a couple, several years ago called the Medicaid Incentives Program, where the CMS was interested in this question. For low health literacy populations, disparity populations, is paying people make a difference? So we submitted a grant to uh, CMS and got $10 million for the state of New Hampshire to focus on 1,200 obese people with mental health conditions and uh, 900 smokers and to randomize them to a number of different options that they can choose from. But half are then subsequently randomized either to getting incentives, getting paid $5 every time they go to the gym, or about $300 if they stop smoking, verified by cotinine and carbon monoxide and other sorts of things. Um, or, um, or actually, if they go to Weight Watchers, we also pay them. So we're in the process of uh, completing that study now, and hopefully we'll have some, uh, some data soon on that. So I, I guess the point is, you throw everything you can at it, and then try to figure out what works most, because this is really hard work, uh, but it's really important to do. Now we've been, as Rich mentioned, we've really been uh, really fortunate to, to take all this work and pile it into a grant that just got, uh, got funded to establish a, a health promotion center at Dartmouth, um, focusing on obesity and on smoking cessation. Um, that's us. Um, uh, we're one of, uh, of uh, 26 centers across the country. Um, and our focus in particular, which uh, we really want to make available to the Dartmouth community, is focusing on measurably decreasing cardiovascular risk in two of the winnable, so-called winnable battles, obesity and tobacco use, in primary care and in community organizations. So we're going to be um, approaching all of our friends and colleagues in primary care to see, think about how can we do this better in terms of smoking cessation obesity in, in primary care. So. This is a lot of people who uh, work for me and work with me, and I've been thrilled to work with in our two centers, our aging center and also in our CDC center. Many people are not mentioned here who also are colleagues, and, but this is, actually, this is a team approach and, and one that, uh, again, has just been a, a thrill for me to be a part of in terms of particularly some of the early career investigators that I've had the pleasure of helping to mentor. So I've tried to talk about approaches to health promotion prevention coaching, self-management uh, coaching and support, chronic disease management, and then also talking about facilitating behavior change through health technology. And this array, I would suggest, is really about the way that we can think about so-called co-producing health, that it's really not about what we do as physicians personally, but how we work as partners with patients and families who are involved in their own self-management through primary care, health coaching, health promotion, and technology. And these drivers that are in the corners, obesity, smoking, chronic illness, aging, end-of-life care, mental health services, these are, account for so much of the costs and uh, bad downstream outcomes that we can see. But we can do something about all of these things if we focus on, again, the future of population health. And, Rob Green and others that are really committed to this are really providing nice leadership and people like Al Mulley who's doing this around the world, um, focusing on prevention and health coaching and self-management and technology and using informatics to inform this to improve uh, outcomes and improving value, uh, not just volume in terms of what we do in terms of healthcare system. 
So I said that there may be a way to kind of think about putting this all together. And this is a little busy slide, but I want to end before I get back to one more patient uh, with a kind of an idea, which is that uh, I think we're in a really interesting position right now as a system. We have an ACO framework which allows us some potential freedom to be creative. We have a wonderful array of, uh, of the groups that are focused around uh, population health and improvement and the wonderful work in the cancer center, the work of Geisel uh, scientists, uh, the work at TDI, which to date has been largely descriptive but is moving more and more towards applied interventions in healthcare delivery science and, and TDC. And then there's Synergy, which you heard about, which obviously has all these resources that we could be putting on the table. The centers, the Weight and Wellness Center, the CDC Health Promotion Center, our, our uh, Centers for Health and Aging, and then all the work that's being done around technology, and then the community providers that have been involved in, in kind of doing brief experiments of change. What if we put that all together into kind of a, a, an initiative around innovation, where we bridged the medical school and our education and training and research to actually be involved as, uh, as providers in brief tests of change around some of these ideas uh, and improve knowledge and improved outcomes for people and actually leverage the terrific uh, resources that we have if we put them all together in a focus around transforming population health, but innovating, um, coming up with new ideas and new approaches and seeing which ones work and quickly figuring out whether or not they fail or should be scaled, fail to scale. So these areas are the ones that I've been focusing on. There are others here, obviously, but I think that there's huge potential to move this down the pike and, and realize our potential as an academic health center. So I mentioned I'm going to finish. I started with a patient. I'm going to end with a patient. And this program I told you about across Massachusetts, New Hampshire, with 1,200 overweight and uh, 900 smokers, I'm going to have two of, the, two of these individuals in this program uh, kind of talk a little bit about their, their experience. Hi. I'm Jeff, and I'm in the Live Well, Breathe Well uh, program. It's been a really great uh, program for the past year. Uh, I've quit smoking pretty much completely. Um, yeah, it's been very educational, and um, yeah, I'm pretty much proud to say as of today, I'm a, a non-smoker, so right. almost a year. I have been working out with the Y as well, and um, I'm actually able to work out better than I used to. Um, I definitely feel the uh, the lungs, you know, I'm able to breathe easier, and I don't get as winded or out of breath easily. Mm -hmm. and, you know, not as easy as I did. I was able to just you know, work through with the packet and everything that, you know, it was my binder and everything that I was able to use. Yeah, and it just was like, all right, here's your opportunity, you know, you got the chance, you got the choice. So with a little, a little, I'll give a little reference here, a little help from my friends, I quit. And I'm in the Healthy Choices, Healthy Changes program. Um, and basically it's changed my whole life. Um, well, actually, what life? I didn't have a life. It's more healthy choices, healthy changes. Um, I've lost over 70 pounds since January. Um, I've joined a gym. I always wanted to go to the gym. I told my health mentor I've gone and sat in the parking lot, but I've never actually gone into the gym because I'm just too nervous, anxious, don't know what to do when you get in there. Don't ask people because you feel stupid because you don't know what you're doing. And um, 
And it's helped tremendously. I actually, my dad here, bought me books to uh, study to become a personal trainer because if I've changed my life. I want to help other people change their life. Especially if people are nervous or anxious about going and afraid that it won't work for them. Because, you know, that's what I was always afraid of too. And, you know, when people see you and they say, wow, you totally, I can't believe it's you. And it's like, um, we had a party, a Christmas party at uh, Margie, my friend down the street's house, and her mom came over and hadn't seen me in half a year, and she walked by me, and she went to Margie and said, where's Tower? And she said, Tower's right there. I'm like, oh my god, wow, really? That's pretty empowering, and it, it makes you feel better, and when you go out, you don't feel as anxious that people are looking at you, that, you know, they think you're unattractive, that you stick out, or... She started running 5K races, and she actually ran a five-mile race with me. Oh, and did very well. And actually, I did my first relay race up in Winnipesaukee. That was awesome. Relay races either. A year ago, I was like hardly leaving the house, and now I'm, you know, confident enough to go out with hundreds of people in my relay race. And uh, and it was adorable on Mother's Day. Um, Marissa made a card for me. Did I tell you this? She drew a card for me, and um, on the front. I was like, is that you? It had a person going like that. And she said, yeah, when we, um, well, when we go out um, to the park and we play tag, I can catch them now. Because <laughs> I, I, actually, I was down on both knees. I was like, this is what I've been training for. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, no, I'm not going to be it. <laughs> so, so, I, I cool. mean, check, Tara's doing good. She just had a little setback with the shoulder. She, you know, she, she got the shoulder fixed, but when she comes back, she'll be good. And Maybe we could do a half marathon. Which, wow. which the, the health mentor carry um, helps a lot with that. Finding other things like doing the intervals on the uh, on the bike at the gym. Um, oh yeah, I think without the health mentor that Tara's had, um, she probably wouldn't have progressed. Actually, you know what I just realized before I started this program, I couldn't have crossed my legs <laughs> because I was so big. I mean, it's weird things like that that you notice. Oh, yeah, and then there's the bushes in our yard that had been done for like 10 years. years. She did them. <laughs> we did our yard. It was like awesome. I don't like you can see the front of her house now. She's been like, are we doing that? I actually, when I started this program, I was pre-diabetic, um, borderline sugar. I'm not anymore. This can be sold as a way to balance budgets because um, just the money you save in, in, in health care would be phenomenal. Is there any last thing that you would want to convey to um, the people who came up with this study? Awesome. They, they've they've re resurrected lives. Good job. Good job. Awesome. Awesome job. You deserve a payment. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... So uh, I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, again, the last word I think is the best one. Uh, but uh, any questions about, uh, yeah? A major medical condition that's often neglected is poverty. Uh, you, make, you showed one, uh, one of the references where you work with low-income yeah. people. Can you say more about some other issues that are helping and, and can, can we see change in the, if poverty can't be corrected? Yeah, I think the social determinants of health, as you're pointing out, poverty is, is one that is very difficult to kind of grapple with. But what we do know that actually some of these health coaching interventions seem to work especially well with folks that are most disenfranchised. So figuring out ways, as we've heard out here, you know, working with the extension college to kind of uh, the extension uh, community extension around helping people to learn how to shop on a Medicaid budget, helping people to have affordable places to exercise, uh, providing uh, 
the type of uh, personalized uh, uh, kind of coaching that we can do uh, virtually. All of these things, I think, actually look like they have even better mileage in health disparity populations. Not to say that it counteracts the, the critical factor of poverty and, and being disadvantaged, but, uh, but uh, these things work as well or even better because the converse, which is living in really unhealthy environments, having no access to healthy foods or whatever, is so poor that even minor kind of tweaks can make a huge difference. So again, um, seem, these things seem to work most well actually in health disparity populations and disadvantaged. Yeah? Do you have any hard outcome data, survival, disease-free survival? You showed some hospitalization data, but yeah. I found those very hard to interpret. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, what we do, yeah, I, I tried to go over a lot of papers very quickly. What we don't have is we do not have survival data. What we have is the proximal outcomes of the indicators, the predictors of hospitalization. So we actually have looked at, for example, decreases in, in glucose, decreases in hypertension, decreases in proximal outcomes, definitely significant decreases in smoking and, and, and obesity. So uh, we're implying, inferring, that we're actually going to move this health disparity uh, 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 mortality curve, but we don't know yet. But we're going to, we just got funded through the CDC to actually track this whole group of people that we've been doing for four years, that big population I'm talking about, we got a grant to track them out another uh, five or six years, and one of the things we're going to look at is mortality rates, so we'll, and the population will hopefully be big enough, we'll actually see. So we'll see. Yeah, Ken. This is an internal medicine uh, yeah. but I'm curious if you could apply these behavioral modification approaches to teenagers or to young, very yeah. young adults before they've had a lifetime of habits. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. That's what my wife said. She said, you know, there's nothing about children in here. She's a child psychiatrist. I said, I know nothing about children. No, I, um, um, I think clearly the, the, there's huge opportunity here. For, I mean, who, do, who likes to go to gyms? Who, who likes to work out? Who likes to be involved in these sorts of use of games? So there is some research in using these sorts of approaches. Um, uh, but uh, there, to my knowledge, in terms of really disadvantaged high-risk kids who are overweight and things. I, I don't know any studies similar to these in terms of the range and scope uh, that uh, ours are among several, but uh, it, specifically focusing at at-risk kids. Other, other people may know, but I, I'm not aware of those. Brooke, yeah, Brooke. Hi, hey, Brooke. So, um, as you know, we've been doing this pilot project in health coaching for complex patients with diabetes. And one of the things we struggled with is sort of dosing. Yeah. It's a great question. That's actually one of the major research questions of this study we got funded in Boston to do. Uh, we're actually uh, uh, going to be stratifying intensity in terms of some of the risk factors. We actually have risk propensity scores that we're kind of looking at, and we're actually going to be we're going to be modifying the degree of intensity of the self -co health coaching intervention on, on that parameter. Um, clearly, that's the thing. Everyone, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And that, I think, even like these interventions are effective, they also are, you know, heavy lifting. Uh, they, they can be expensive. And I think that's, that's the, uh, that's really, I think, the, uh, the, the, the kind of primary thing that we need to be looking at right now, which is what sort of intensity is necessary. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But we actually have that designed in our Boston study right now that we're working on. So hopefully we'll know in a couple of years. Thank you. 
Given the time, I know some of you may have additional questions. Steve will be here. I want to thank you for your passion. Well, thank I you. I want to thank you for your mentoring and your ability to bring people together and for your friendship and oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.